Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. This is Carolyn Grace speaking, content writer at LRN and co-producer of the podcast. This week, we're sharing a conversation from earlier in Season 9 that looks at key findings from LRN's 2023 Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report, which is now available to explore. In this episode, Emily Miner and Susan Divers, members of LRN's Advisory Services Group, talk about the insights that stood out to them this year. And they discuss how ENC professionals can use the report's best practices to navigate the perfect storm of risks in today's world. Enjoy the discussion. There are clear challenges for the road ahead in 2023 economic headwinds, geopolitical conflict, supply chain disruption, stakeholder activism, increased scrutiny by government regulators. At LRN, A central lesson from our ongoing research and work with thousands of organizations is that a values-based approach to governance, culture, and leadership is crucial. It builds and sustains ethical culture, which is the essential element of effective ethics and compliance programs, and it correlates strongly with reduced risk and better business outcomes. But how exactly are ENC programs navigating the risks and challenges on the road ahead, and how are they evolving in response? Hi, welcome to the first episode of Season 9 of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Miner, Director of Advisory Services at LRN. I'm joined today by my colleague, Susan Divers, the Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices with LRN's Advisory Group. We're going to be talking about how values can sustain ethical performance and absorb the shocks of unanticipated business realities. To do so, we'll draw insights from our new 2023 edition of LRN's annual Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report, of which Susan is our lead author. Susan, thanks for joining me on the Principled Podcast. I'm excited that we're both kicking off the ninth season together. Oh, Emily, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So as a starting point for our discussion and for those listeners that may not be familiar, what is the Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report, or as we familiarly call it internally at LRN, our PEI, our Program Effectiveness Index? Well, I can explain both of those points. The Program Effectiveness Report, we've been doing that longer than I've been at LRN, so I'd say we've been doing it at least 10 years And what it is, is every year we do a survey globally of ethics and compliance professionals, and we ask them questions about their program, and we also rank the programs that we survey in terms of highly effective, medium impact, and less than effective programs. And to do that, we use what's called the PEI or the Program Effectiveness Index. And we can talk about that a little bit later, how the PEI works and why it's actually better than just measuring activities. But in a nutshell, 
the annual program effectiveness report gives us an opportunity to see how programs are doing in practice, what's working, what isn't working, and what are the best practices that are starting to emerge. Awesome. Thank you for that overview. And we always have sort of a theme or an overarching focus. Our past two program effectiveness reports really looked at the impact of COVID on ethics and compliance programs and on organizations more broadly. And then before that, in 2020, we explored the root causes of misconduct. So what is the overarching theme of this year's, the 2023 study? Uh, The overarching theme, Emily, is really how to be resilient and continue to meet the unprecedented challenges that not only ethics and compliance programs, but businesses generally and indeed other institutions are facing. To look back just for a minute, the last couple of years, of course, we had COVID and all of the disruptions that that brought And then this last year in February, we had the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, which I think it's fair to say was not anticipated. And that's caused a tremendous amount of a different kind of disruption. It's really disrupted supply chains. Mm -hmm. And when you combine that with what's happening in China, with the disruption of the supply chains there and some really big human rights issues, you have a very changed world. So we wanted to look at how ethics and compliance programs were responding to those ongoing challenges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind of in the initial description of what the program effectiveness report is, is that it's an annual global survey that we do. And that's, that's an evolution really over the past few years. When we first started doing this research some 10 years ago, as you mentioned, I have to say it was pretty U.S.-centric. But now, and in the past several years, we have fairly equal representation across North America, Europe, Asia, some slightly less representation in some other geographic markets. How has this shift from really a U.S. or North American-centric data set to a global data set impacted the results that we're seeing year over year and the insights that, that we've uncovered through this research? Well, that's a really interesting question. What our results say is that there's basically been an acceptance, I would say globally, that having a robust ethics and compliance program is a really good idea. It's no longer sort of a U.S. idea or maybe a North American idea or a European one. It's global. And I think there's also been an acceptance of what an effective program should really look like and what the elements of it should be. So that's a really interesting development. I think even five years ago, you might not have really seen that in the results. And we have seen some areas of the world that lag behind, notably Japan. But overall, even having said that, ethics and compliance programs are trying to do pretty much the same thing and largely in the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's been interesting for me because I, I've, I've had a hand in doing the analysis of the data. It's been interesting for me to look at the global variation 
that we're seeing in the results and where there are similarities, and there are a lot of similarities across the different geographies for which we have data. But then there are some, I think Germany had a slightly more focus on the use of data. And I recall another, I think it was Canada, had a slightly more focus on employee engagement. So just, you know, each sort of the slight variations or sometimes more significant variations that we're seeing in our global data set is interesting to parse out. And of course, it enables us to give sort of this global view, but also a more localized slice for ethics and compliance professionals around the world. Absolutely. So let's talk about the PEI. You mentioned that, the Program Effectiveness Index. And it's unique in that we determine program effectiveness based on key indicators of ethical culture as opposed to a list of program activities. So we ask eight questions that measure three areas of critical workplace behavior, ethical decision-making, organizational justice, and freedom of expression. And we use these items or the answers to these items to categorize programs as high-impact medium or lower impact. And then we look at how program activities, program priorities, ethic and compliance standing in the organization, how it's operationalized, et cetera, vary across the different program types. And this approach is different and I think we would argue better than other ENC program surveys out there that maybe focus a little more on program activities, reporting on those program activities. So can you talk about this a little bit and just in terms of the methodology, like how does that methodology influence the kind of insights that we're able to explore? I'll be happy to do that, Emily. Before I do, I do want to tie our approach to what's now become accepted wisdom in the ENC space. And that's that there's been too much focus in the past, as we both know, on paper programs and checklists And as you mentioned, reporting activities, we trained this number of people. We redid our code of conduct twice in the past three years. There's been a recognition, particularly by regulators, that that's meaningless if your program doesn't have impact and effectiveness. And what I mean by that is if it doesn't actually change behavior or promote ethical behavior. So by focusing on cultural factors, such as those, those ones that you just mentioned, that's a much more meaningful way to try to gain insight into what programs do better. And as you know, since we've been doing that, we've really seen a very strong correlation between values-based programs rather than the ones that rely predominantly on rules and strong performance. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for for making that connection. Following or watching the, particularly the DOJ's guidance and how it's evolved over the past four years or so, it has been interesting for me to watch the increased emphasis on culture and and specificity as well. You know, when we think about the 2020 guidance compared to the 2016 guidance, for example, there's so much more language and focus around ethical culture and whether your program works in practice. That's, of course, the third foundational question that is asked in the in the guidance. So I appreciate that you brought that connection back. And I think, you know, we're, we've seen that 
as well in the data, you know, when we look year over year, that pool of programs that we characterize as highly effective or or having a high impact on their organizations is also growing. And the gap between the medium impact and the high impact program on some of the other questions that we ask is also narrowing as we see more organizations bring a focus to these more behavioral aspects of how we influence ethical behavior and culture. Yeah. So, okay. I want to bring back a little bit to the question of the methodology and how that influences the insights that we are able to explore in our research, looking at the high, medium, and low and and the ethical culture indicators. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, by asking questions that focus on values at work in the workplace, like levels of trust, levels of respect, levels of organizational justice, you're immediately shifting the focus towards effectiveness and impact. In other words, the program may look one way, but what does it do? And that, again, is the values lens that really strongly emerges in our research. And what we're also seeing, interestingly, and this year we had close to 1860 respondents worldwide, what we're seeing is that those percentages of like high-performing programs, middle-performing programs, and less effective ones generally hold fairly consistently across the world, which I think is really interesting. And I think that's because one of the differences we've seen is that high-performing programs really are very proactive, very employee-focused, constantly evaluating and improving. And then there's another category of programs, which is much more sort of, okay, we've got a program, it may be in a corner over here, but that's enough for us. And so I think that gap is widening. And I think the PEI index is a really good way to get that insight. Okay, so let's dig into the actual findings. What are the top three insights you want our listeners to walk away with? Well, I think the first, Emily, is to recognize that it's a time of great risk. And as we talked about before, that there's a perfect storm hitting ENC programs. First, the war in the Ukraine has just created major risks in trade controls and the supply chain area. Essentially, you have to screen everybody you're doing business with and ensure that it's not a sanctioned entity. And it's not just sanctions on Russia, it's sanctions on China and sanctions on Iran and a lot of restrictions on what can be transferred, whether it's technology or hardware. So that creates an enhanced risk. And in the previous questions we were talking about, I think I mentioned that Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco has described trade controls as the new FCPA. It says it all. So the first is to realize that it's a, it's a time of great risk. And it's also what we're seeing in our report is that people are reporting that outmoded internal systems are really holding them back from improving program effectiveness and that they've also got budget limits and staff shortages. So what they're being asked to do is is increasing, and the resources that they have to do it with look like they're decreasing. And then the, the second one is that 
this has been true for a while, but it's even more true in that there's a laser focus on effectiveness. And that's coming not only from the regulators, but also from the ENC teams themselves. I don't think I get on a call these days without that question coming up. How do we know that our program's working? How do we know that our training's effective? How do we know that we're actually preventing misconduct? And in terms of training, for example, as you know, our platform has great capability in that area, such as test out, measuring learning time spent on learning subjects, quizzes. And we've also got various tools that we can use to help with that, like the ECPA, our culture survey or a program evaluation. And now we've got a mini culture pulse survey that can be embedded with courses. And those kinds of real-time insights as employees are interacting with the NC programs are frankly much more valuable than the number of people that you train. Mm -hmm. And then we're also seeing a real demand for interactive codes of conduct because those give you data metrics as do interactive policies. And then finally, the new must-have is really data analytics. I mean, that's been gathering steam for several years now, but the Department of Justice just hired a former SECO from Anheuser-Busch, Matt Galvin, who was a real pioneer in that area. And you can expect Matt is going to really influence the department's expectations that when you do interact with regulators, you're going to be able to show them real data indicating that your program is not only mitigating risk, but that it's responding to red flags or hotspots. And then last but not least, we're really seeing much more of a gap between high-performing programs and those that are less effective. And you and I have talked about kind of the phenomena where people set up a program and great, they've got it set up and it trudges along and they don't really think about it a whole lot. And that's kind of one group of programs. And the other group, the high-performing, are constantly improving and constantly evaluating what they're doing. And especially during the pandemic, those programs got very focused on employee interaction and helping employees use the ENC program and reaching out to them and making it as easy as possible. We have that great example, two program effectiveness reports ago, where Dell moved all of their annual training onto a mobile app. And that's a great example. And then it goes kind of without saying, but high-performing programs do a better job of impacting and influencing business decisions. There's some great data in the this year's report about companies actually deciding not to do things because of ethical reasons, whether it's a merger or a business initiative. And the, also the data on high-performing programs having engaged and informed boards is really pretty dramatic. It makes just a huge difference if your board has some ENC expertise going beyond the initial training, and then programs get a lot more support as a result. Yeah, absolutely. That last point that you made was one that really stuck out for me in looking into the data at the delta between those programs where their board was engaged and had some expertise in ethics and compliance versus those organizations where the board lacks that expertise. The magnifier effect was really quite striking. 
let's talk about something that was striking. So was there a particular finding that surprised you or that you are really excited about? Well, there was one that surprised me, and it's a bit of a negative finding. And it's that I think it was over 60% of the nearly 2,000 people we surveyed worldwide said that data analytics were a high priority. But I think it was about only 20% had actually moved to implement data Mm -hmm. analytics. And that's an unhealthy delta because, as I said, it's clear that data analytics are becoming the new must-have. And it could be hard to explain why you don't have it if you were asked. And secondly, I think for boards, rather than getting information on training completions, which really doesn't tell you whether your program's effective, it tells you it's doing something, but it doesn't tell you whether that's having impact. If you can get data analytics and present them to the board on what courses people in the company are flunking, and what areas of the world or the business are struggling with particular subjects, then that's really much more meaningful data. And the same is true about anything in the culture area as well. So I think that's an area that that people should really think about and prioritize. Yeah, I attended the annual SCCE conference last year, and data was all over the, the conference in Jedna. And most of what people were saying were at the infancy or the very beginnings of our journey in collecting data, making sense of the data that, we, that we're collecting. We're not really sure what to do. What does it mean? So I think this is, it's definitely going to continue to be a space to watch. And it'll be interesting to kind of chart the improvements over the next few years in that area. And, you know, with our new capability You mentioned it's one thing to collect data. It's another thing to know what it means. That gives you a dashboard that you could basically print out a report from it to give to your board every quarter. That's a huge issue too. It's one thing to collect data. It's another thing to make sense of it. So I'm really pleased with what we've been able to do at LRN in that area. Yeah, absolutely. So Susan, to kind of close out our conversation, we conduct this research every year. We put together a report of what we're seeing And our goal, of course, is that we're adding value to the community, to the ethics and compliance leaders out there that are trying to make sense of their own programs, think about their strategy, what's coming up next around the bend. So how should an ethics and compliance leader be thinking about or reading this report? How can it help them in their jobs? Well, I think the report gives people both an opportunity and some really valuable insights to step back for a minute and to say, okay, we're in a situation where there's increased risk and things are constantly changing in this world. And we're also seeing that most programs are reporting that they have internal systems that aren't that helpful and hold back program progress, staff shortages, budget constraints. So where do we prioritize? As I said before, it's easy to do the same thing over and over. But taking a step back and saying, is that the right thing to be doing? Is that really important at this moment? Or do we need to be strengthening our trade controls? Do we need to be strengthening our platform? And what is going to give us the best risk mitigation? And what's going to give us the most value for money? And even if that's a big investment now, can it substantially pay dividends going forward? 
And I always think of IT programs, you know, 10 years ago, they started saying to boards and leaders of companies, hey, we have to invest in anti-fraud and anti-hacking protections. And it's a good thing that a lot of companies did because it turned out they really needed it. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in the same sort of situation here. It's time to invest in platform and to invest in data analytics and also to take a hard look at your program generally and make sure that it's consistent with best practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Susan, thank you so much for joining me on this inaugural season nine episode of the Principled Podcast and walking us through our latest ethics and compliance program effectiveness report. I know we're publishing it in just a few short weeks. I think the by the time this podcast makes it onto Spotify and Apple and wherever else people get their podcasts, we should have the report published. So we'll include the link to it in the podcast notes. So for those listening, we hope you'll go and check it out. Yeah. Thank you, Susan. Oh, Emily, it's always a pleasure to talk with you anytime. And thank you for listening. My name is Emily Miner, and we'll see you next time on The Principled Podcast by LRN. That's a wrap for this Encore episode. To learn more about program effectiveness and the importance of corporate resilience, download a copy of the 2023 Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report at LRN.com, or click the link in our show notes. LRN will also be hosting a webinar on real-world applications of the report's best practices. Keep an eye out for that later in April. Thanks again for listening. I'm Carolyn Grace, and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.